Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Sunday Take. It is October 30th, 2022. I'm Blois Olson. We are nine days away from Election Day, and Sunday Take's going to be a little different this week. I have invited Dr. Scott Jensen and Governor Tim Walls to sit down for an extended conversation about why they want to be governor. Dr. Scott Jensen has accepted, and we're going to have that conversation here this hour. I have still not confirmed that Governor Walls will have a conversation, but he's been invited. It has been uh, repeated, and I would just say out loud that the invitation is still open. When we come back, Dr. Scott Jensen, why does he want to be governor, and what has he learned on the campaign trail? I'm Blaise Olson. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Joining me now is Dr. Scott Jensen. He's running for governor. You've seen his name. You've read articles. You've seen plenty of ads. But my goal for this hour is to dig a little deeper, pull back some layers, and have a conversation. 
Dr. Scott Jensen, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Blaise, for the opportunity to have a conversation. When you decided you wanted to run for governor, I think we've heard kind of why you decided to run for governor. What are the things that you thought about then that are either different or have changed since then? There were two things that sort of pushed me forward to running for governor. One was the virtual miraculous recovery of my wife's health following four major surgeries. And at the same time, uh, COVID-19 had hit, and it hit hard. I was in the Senate at the time and found myself being a spokesperson for the Republican Senate caucus, but also for just what I thought was common sense. And probably the issue that propelled me forward most at the beginning of the pandemic was the fact that I raised my hand and indicated that I thought the instructions we were receiving from the Minnesota Department of Health and the CDC as to how to complete death certificates was problematic. It was a change from what we've done in the past. It was clearly going to allow for the underlying cause of death to be identified as COVID in situations where we would not have completed the death certificate in the same fashion were it influenza or pneumonia. So when I spoke up, I ended up attracting a fair amount of notoriety and ended up learning a lot more about national cable news than I ever had before. (laughs) But over the first six months of the pandemic, I was in the Senate going to virtually a special session every month. And frequently, we discussed COVID topics on the floor of the Senate. Over the second six months of 2020, from July to December, I was being encouraged to reconsider leaving politics because I would already announced that I wasn't running for re-election to the Senate. Uh, Mary's health had been in danger, and I was grateful that her health had been restored through these surgeries. But during that six months, I was recruited actively to think about running. And in the end, Blois, what really made the difference was two things. One, having been in the Senate, I saw how broken governance was. And the second was, I felt that I was in the position I was in for such a time as this. I'm not a professional politician. I'm not looking for a new career path. I like solving problems. And I was raised by my attorney father to be skeptical. And I felt like we needed a healthy dose of skepticism as well as a passionate pursuit of solutions. And I thought that we'd never find the right answers if we didn't pay a little bit more attention to asking the right questions. And so on Christmas Day 2020, my wife and I looked at each other in the morning and said, we got to do this. So we started making some early plans, and then we announced in March of 2021, which is about 18 months ago. You know, the one thing on COVID and public health and all of the discussions that it strikes me is in medicine, there's different views and there's different approaches. Why do you think medicine, which is usually not polarizing, that there's so many different views of scientists and doctors on COVID? I don't think you're quite right. I think there have always been many views in medicine regarding science and diagnosis and prognosis and treatment of disease. 
but we embraced it more. And I think that started to change perhaps 10, 15 years ago in medicine. Mm -hmm. But I remember in younger days where we would have grand rounds. And grand rounds was where you'd have frequently 25, 50, even 100 physicians. With <laughs> I remember my wife was the subject of grand rounds once because she had a very interesting rash during a pregnancy. And she would sit there in sort of a paper gown at the front of the room in this theater type of setting mm -hmm. with a bunch of doctors in white coats and all kinds of uh, medical equipment hanging out of their pockets. And we would traipse by her, look at the rash, press the bumps, make comments, ask her a quick question, go sit down in our chairs again, and then we'd have at it. I mean, someone would say, I think this is an inflammatory condition that has a relationship to pemphigoid. And someone mm -hmm. would also say, I don't mm -hmm. think you're right at all. I think it's this. And we didn't okay. stand around holding hands singing kumbaya. Uh, we went at each other. And that was part of the process. And we were okay with that. I think over the last 10, 15 years, I think medicine has changed. It's become much more of an algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what you do. You, you plug the patient into this algorithm, and then you let it flow from there. And I think COVID came along, and all of a sudden, everybody was hungry for answers, and nobody wanted to make a mistake, and we were confused. And so the people who, if you will, held the microphone, held the media's attention, they were the ones who got to create the algorithm. So they said, well, this is what we do. And if you remember, some of the things we did fairly early on, we learned we maybe shouldn't be doing them, like using ventilators pretty aggressively, mm -hmm. realizing that, gee whiz, the, the death rate with ventilators went from 40% in the standard situation to 80% in a COVID situation. So I think that it was almost a perfect storm. I think that medicine was moving into an algorithmically driven way to take care of patients. COVID came along and everybody wanted an algorithm. And I think that's why you've seen such a fracture in the medical profession during COVID. I mean, there are people out there place that just despise me. And I've never, as a physician, been worthy of anybody's despise, just being despised. I, yeah. I'm a family doctor. I've always had a wonderful relationship with my the physicians I refer to. And I was family doctor in the year 2016. I've been a professor at the medical school for 30 years. I was uh, awarded one of 15 awards as a resident uh, around the country. Uh, there were only 15 awards, and I was the recipient of one of them. So it, it's been pretty odd for me to have these doctors saying that I'm not worthy to practice medicine. So it's been really weird. One last angle on that is public health. Public health, we learned a lot about how government or public health agencies think about health, maybe different than we do, because uh, they think about the health of the masses, where a family thinks about their family health, or I think of my personal health. Is that a different viewpoint from the way in which doctors talk about health, because it's more algorithmic, or there needs to be a one-size-fits-all? It's a really good question, and I could see where the layperson might think that that's the case, but we have so much public health in our curriculum. I remember before I went into medicine, I was in dental school, and I remember taking my first epidemiology classes, and I also took a lot of classes in uh, the history of medicine, and the history of medicine is filled with stories of public health. If you look at Bud and Snow in England identifying that people would get sick less often if they would make certain that their drinking water was clearly cordoned off from sewer water. And it seems now to be a ridiculous thing, but at the time uh, there was no concern that there was an admixture of these two types of uh, water. So I think that we get a lot of public health and it's even more now because of vaccines. Uh, vaccinations have been such a huge advance for public health mm -hmm. that 
a big part of our first year in medical school has to do with microbiology, the various organisms we're dealing with. And we don't confine our efforts to creating vaccines to just viruses. We do it with bacteria, and we're trying to come up with a vaccine to melanoma. So I think that public health really is part and parcel of medical education. And then for sure there are some physicians who go on and specialize and perhaps get a Ph.D. in epidemiology and things like that. But I do think that physicians as a rule are pretty reasonably well-versed in public health issues. And we understand the need for the intersection between treating the individual and then treating the masses. And we talk about screening tests all the time. If a screening test can't efficiently and cost-effectively do what we need it to do, then it's not going to be a screening test. And so we talk about those kinds of things all the time. I'm talking to Scott Jensen. This is a little different Sunday take. We're here for the full hour. It's going to be an extended interview. Dr. Jensen, if you are elected, what's your first priority as governor? Building bridges. I mean, we'll definitely have some legislative uh, initiatives that we want to move forward quickly, but we need to build bridges, and not, not just between the governor and the House and the governor and the Senate, the Republican versus Democrat. We need to, frankly, as governor, I need to retrace my steps. I need to get back out to the same places I just got done campaigning in and go back out there and say, okay, now I'm your governor. Now we're not talking about theory anymore. I need to hear what do you think should be our priorities? What do you think we should be doing? How do you think we should be approaching this? Whether we're talking to miners, loggers, farmers, small business people. But I think that, and I'm not trying to be super critical when I say this, boys, but I had a chance to work with Governor Dayton for a couple of years, and I had a nice relationship with him. But I don't think Governor Dayton's health was real vigorous. So I don't think it was easy for him to get back out into Minnesota and really spend days on end meeting with Minnesotans. And I think Governor Walls had his own uh, unique challenges, uh, especially in the last uh, two and a half years, that I didn't see him really in robust fashion, getting back out and meeting with Minnesotans everywhere. I think that's really important. I think Minnesotans are hungry uh, for someone who's really tuned in. Honestly, I think Minnesotans are more hungry for an ongoing relationship than they are for a governor who's got, quote, all the right answers. One of the issues that all Minnesotans know, or most of them do, and has been talked about a lot, is the surplus. Uh, it's $9 billion or $10 billion. It might be $12 billion by the time uh, the legislature and the governor come together. How do you look at that, and what do you do with it when you start to construct your first budget? Well, the first thing I do is I, I humbly acknowledge uh, its origin. And its origin is not a sizzling Minnesota economy. Its origin is the fact that we received from the federal government some $50 billion plus dollars during the course of the pandemic. I think we need to be clear on that. If we hadn't gotten $50 billion, we wouldn't be $10 billion in the black. We'd be $40 billion in the red. So I think we can be honest about that. Having said that, one way or the other, the surplus is going to go away. Politicians won't let it stay. So the question is, do we use a chunk of it for a big bonding bill, a chunk of it for more spending, a chunk of it for a specific confined tax relief program, and do we put some into the rainy day fund and make sure that we've replenished all of those? If we do that, which is perhaps statistically the greatest likelihood, we will have forfeited the opportunity to say, we could have a bigger conversation. We could actually talk about how does Minnesota change its very structure of taxation? Maybe that conversation isn't one that people want to have, but I think it's 
it, it's a pivotal conversation because 20% of our states now have no personal income tax. Perhaps Minnesota is not in the position where we could be one of those states. But I really think that with that surplus in existence, this is the time to have that conversation. First off, without question, just get rid of the tax on Social Security because it's already been paid. And I think we're the only one of 13 states that do this. So let's just fix that right away, and that will cost a significant amount of money. I think the most recent data I saw was somewhere between $750 and, uh, million and $1.1 billion, somewhere in there. But I think I would love to have the conversation, is there other sources of revenue that could be replacing some of our personal income tax? I honestly think that we need to look at mining and Arguably, the mining industry could be a trillion-dollar industry for Minnesota, particularly as we get into some of these minerals other than simply mining iron ore. And I think that this is the time to have that conversation. And I've been ridiculed for wanting to have that conversation. I don't know if we can get there, but I think we should have that conversation. And if we, as a House and a Senate and as a state, decide that it's not doable, then I think we should take a big chunk of that surplus, make a permanent uh, tax uh, reform in place, I'd love to focus on reducing the uh, percentage of the two lower income tax brackets. I think that that's where you would provide the greatest assistance to middle class. I do think it's important for people to realize that I think there's some 30 to 40 percent of adults in Minnesota that don't pay any state tax. So I think what we're doing is we're trying to focus on that uh, quartile of maybe people between the 35th percentile and the 60th percentile. And that would be, I think, a great assistance to those folks. But I, again, I, before we do that, I think we could do January, February, a lot of good policy. We could rewrite emergency powers. We could get uh, photo ID in place. We could have uh, school choice put in place, do some of these big policy decisions. And we could have subcommittees and task forces working on this other big conversation regarding a personal income tax and maybe have a report back to the full legislature in early March, and, and we'd have a better idea whether or not we can go forward in that. You're listening to Sunday Take on Newstalk 830 WCCO. I want to thank AARP Minnesota, the Minnesota Credit Unions, and Minnesota Corn Growers for sponsoring our deep, in-depth coverage on WCCO this election season. When we come back, who would be in Dr. Scott Jensen's cabinet if he's elected governor? I'm Blaise Olson. Thanks for listening. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Sunday Take. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Scott Jensen, Republican candidate for governor. Dr. Jensen, I teased it before we took the break. What kind of people, are there any names that if you're elected, you would invite to be a part of your cabinet? 
there would be no names that I could put forth, but I could put forth some names that won't be on there. And I think you won't see me asking elected House members and Senate members to leave the seat they were just elected to. I think that would be problematic, and uh, I'd be very surprised if uh, we moved in that direction. I think the core group of people, I've talked with governors and from both Minnesota and other states, I think we're going to end up having about 10 people that are really close to me, and we're going to have about 40 people that are reasonably close to me. And I think that group, if we just go to that group of, if you will, department commissioners and other people, your chief of staff and Mm -hmm. some of the people inside your office, if you look at those people, I think it's going to be a remarkably diverse group. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we don't have someone in their 20s on that group. We're certainly going to be well represented in terms of both men and women. Uh, We're going to have uh, people of uh, numerous kinds of nationalities uh, because, boys, I... I really get disgusted with the tendency for politicians particularly, but leaders of any type, to get trapped into some sort of echo chamber or groupthink uh, situation, and they don't realize it. And the only way you avoid that is to put people around you that are willing to tell you that your, your idea is dumber than a rock. And uh, I do not want people around me that are going to say, yes, sir. Because, frankly, my ego doesn't need that. And I think that that's how we get trapped into horse crap legislation and politics, governance. Last week, former President Trump endorsed you. As you think about President Trump while he served, what are the things that you think he could have done differently? President Trump? Yeah. I think he could have managed his Twitter account substantially differently. I think he could have managed his um, the last month before his election, uh, particularly in regards to when he uh, came down with covid I think those two things both could have uh, been handled differently. And yet, on the other hand, when someone is ill, why should someone be deciding to tell him how he should behave when you're suffering an illness that has lots of unknowns to it, and then you recover from it? And oftentimes in the recovery from a respiratory viral illness such as COVID, uh, frequently there's bumps along the road, and it can be frightening. But I think I'd probably focus on how should the historians speak to the person of President Trump, uh, or perhaps I should say to the to the presidency of President Trump. And I think that they should be cognizant that he was bold in terms of trying to reduce regulations and his policies, uh, while on the front end of things, oftentimes seemed a little out of bounds. Uh, they oftentimes came back to roost as being very positive. Uh, I think of the way he took on NAFTA, the way he went after NATO and tried to get all the countries to do a better job of paying their fair share, those kinds of things. I think ultimately the uh, Supreme Court justices he appointed, I think, have been identified uh, by both Republicans and Democrats alike as being sound jurists. And I also think the income tax of 2017 was a landmark piece of legislation that, again, was bipartisan and did really focus on providing significant assistance to the middle class. Those are the things that I, I will, I would think, that historians should focus on. For me personally. I'll, I'll go to my grave always admiring the way President Trump was willing to drive the dialogue and engage America. There were times where you maybe didn't want to be engaged at the level we were, but I think of DACA and the Dreamers and some of our uh, immunization, excuse me, our immigration policies. And frankly, you can be a, a lifelong Minnesotan and not really understand a lot about it, but I think President Trump made all of us a little bit more aware of it. You brought up his Twitter account, and one of my observations has just been how, for years, Minnesota 
took pride that it didn't have the national polarization. I sense we have more polarization in Minnesota right now than we've had for a long time. And one of those things is social media and distractive issues or issues that kind of, I call them bright, shiny objects that maybe the media uh, pays more attention to than they should, or that, um, you know, rather than have this conversation or, or a policy conversation, we talk about issues that aren't there. How can you learn from maybe some of those distractive issues that if you're governor, there's not these bright, shiny objects that maybe aren't part of the core job of being governor, that maybe, you know, schools, public safety, roads, running a state are kind of the focus rather than some of these outlier issues that people get so worked up about? I think I would be in a relatively unique position because I'm no spring chicken and I'm not looking for a career path change. So as governor, I think there'd be a certain openness in terms of how I talk with the press. When I was in the Senate, I always thought that I had a pretty open relationship with the media. And I would say what I'm thinking, and oftentimes I'd tell them, now this is just brainstorming. I really don't have this figured out. But you know, I'd like to have that conversation. I think we can do more of that. I think I can lead that conversation. Uh, like I say, I've had the chance to you know, be a professor at the medical school, start businesses, build medical clinics, build buildings. I've had a I've had a wonderful life, boys. And so I think that I'm not looking for what can I see happen that I get credit for. I don't care about who gets credit. What I'd really like to do is build the bridges, start having a conversation, bring journalists into the conversation more, and meet with the journalists maybe once every other week for 30 to 60 minutes where they get to ask questions in a more informal environment. I feel like so many of the things we've done just make it difficult for us to have honest, candid conversations. And I think it's hurting the quality of governance that we, uh, we live within or live under. You brought up some of the issues from voter ID to maybe school choice. Are those immediate priorities that you want to get done right away, or do you take the first session and kind of focus on the budget? No, we do not focus on the budget the first session. That's part of the responsibilities of the first session, and we will get that done. But this would be a priority for me, specifically rewriting emergency powers, uh, photo ID, voter, uh, and, and also a school choice. I think we can do this, and really, uh, if we do it working with one another, I think we can do it in a bipartisan manner. 46 out of 47 countries in Europe use some sort of voter ID uh, methodology. I would like to move forward in that direction. People talk about a specific election and quibble about it. We've been having discussion for the last 22 years since the year 2000 with hanging chads in Florida and finding out who our president was in December rather than November. I think we need to try to take care of this so that for the most part, we can get everybody to say our election process is fair and trustworthy, and we don't have to have it be a campaign issue. Because it's as a campaign issue, it really does take away some of our energies from being able to talk about other things. You've said that if there is a proposed change to abortion, that that should go to a constitutional amendment. Just a few years ago, we had a, a referendum on photo ID. Why not have another referendum on photo ID? I think I'd be fine with that. Uh, you have know, to do a photo ID. I think my recollection, Blois, and please correct me if I'm if I'm incorrect, but I thought that that year there were two uh, constitutional. There were. Yeah, and I think that one might have affected the other. So, I think if we're going to do that, perhaps we try to do it in such a way that we don't necessarily bias the process. I would like to have one million. 
households decide. That would be wonderful. I really am not big on trying to create a new set of winners and losers. If I'm the Republican governor, and I would be so fortunate as to have a Republican Senate and House, this is not the time uh, to jam it down anybody's throat and create winners and losers. This is the time to govern well, build bridges, make certain that you are hearing the voice of the minority and that you're giving them a chance to make what you're working on better. If we don't do that, then we really haven't changed anything. Uh, this isn't a correction. It's just a, a fact is that, um, just so you know, that photo ID actually had more no votes than the marriage amendment. So it passed by more, a larger margin, or it failed by a larger margin than the marriage amendment, just so you know. I looked it up the other day. Why do you think that was? I, I mean, I think that people had an opinion at that moment in time, and a referendum is a moment in time, and we may be at a different moment in time. But I looked it up the other day because I keep hearing this idea that the marriage amendment and the photo ID amendment, voter ID amendment, were you know somehow one influenced the other. And so I looked up the vote totals. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so as we continue here, um, let's talk about schools. If school choice is one of the top priorities, I'm a product of Minnesota public schools. You're a product of Minnesota public schools. Why school choice? And how do you lay out school choice and still make sure that our public schools are strong in Minnesota? It's interesting that we even have to ask the question, why school choice? If we truly buy into what we're doing in education, why do we have K-12 through compulsory education? It's because we want to have an educated citizenry. We want to have basic foundational education take place. Why would we not have school choice? I mean, I think people say, why school choice? Well, why not? Why would parents not have school choice? Why wouldn't they have the whole gamut available to them so that they could take their son or daughter and say, I think Johnny or Janie are going to do best here. I don't really want to have any restrictions based on zip code. And I think that why wouldn't we want to have all kinds of choices about what school to go into, whether it's homeschooling, charter schools, private schools, public schools, private schools that are religious-based, private schools that are maybe based on a specific academic pursuit such as science or maybe immersion in a language. Why would we not want to have that? I think if we do that, what we end up doing is we end up making the whole system stronger. If you go back and read the history books with Rudy Perpich 40 years ago when he pushed hard and championed open enrollment and post-secondary enrollment options, he took heat. Mm-hmm. And yet, he did. now, I think those two ideas are acknowledged as being pretty darn good for kids. I think school choice would be the same. I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that it's that home school district, that home public school district that has the obligation of taking care of Johnny and Janie if they boomerang back into the home district. So we've got to make certain that they've got the funding uh, that is necessary for them to hold a spot available. But I really think that if we just get past this bumping heads and say, okay, we're going to do this, so... Let's do it the best we can, trying to make certain that we're dealing with the whole issue. What about special ed needs? What about that group of kids? How are we going to make certain that we're not, if you will, creating winners and losers in that whole process? I just think it's been 40 years since we've had a big idea in education. It's time. I take care of patients every day that have benefited from being able to move out of their school district that they are planted in because of where their house is. I think we need to go to the next step and have choice. You're listening to an extended interview here on Sunday Take. I'm Blaise Olson with Dr. Scott Jensen, Republican nominee for governor. We're nine days away from the election. When we come back, we'll wrap up the interview on hospitals, healthcare, nursing homes, and what does Dr. Jensen do to unwind. I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. 
Welcome back for the last segment here on Sunday Take. Thanks to Minnesota Corn Growers, Minnesota Credit Unions, and AARP Minnesota for sponsoring in-depth coverage here on WCCO Radio throughout the election, uh, including debates and our election night coverage, which will start at 8 o'clock covering Minnesota votes. And we'll go as late or early into the morning as we need to that day uh, and that night. And I'll be uh, joined by Adam Carter. Dr. Jensen, um, just this last week, hospitals and clinics uh, said, you know, they are under financial strain. You probably see them, talk to them, know them. How do we find a way to make sure that they aren't under that financial strain or that they don't feel like they're, you know, maybe having to be challenged to pay nurses more, make sure that their food service and other folks are paid more and that it especially in greater Minnesota where, you know, access and uh, expense really kind of conflict with each other sometimes. Well, no question about it. Healthcare is very complicated. And when you've got greater Minnesota communities as spread out as they are, there are certain things that you have to look at in any community, whether the community is 500, 5,000 or 25,000. One is you have to ask, what's their clinic coverage? What's their pharmacy coverage? What's their senior living slash assisted living slash nursing home slash memory care coverage and what's their hospital coverage. Those are the sort of the four big players mm-hmm. you got to look at. We need to be clear about the fact that some hospitals have done very well over the last two years, uh, particularly some of them are publicly traded in outside of the uh, Minnesota boundaries. Yeah, But Minnesota, we have, I think, had some challenges, and I think part of it is, and I don't mean to get too political here, but I'm going to say it. I think we could have had more guidance from the Department of Health to help Minnesota healthcare systems understand as they were emerging some of the rules of the pandemic. Because if you actually look at the dollars that were distributed through the, the various CARES uh, Acts, the CARES Act, and the various tranches of dollars distributed, if you look at our population, and I believe we represent approximately 1.75% of the nation, and at least that's our Medicare rate, uh, number. We probably should have gotten more money. We should have gotten more money for our hospital systems. I don't think we did well enough. And certainly uh, our nursing homes are, are in trouble. And we are seeing, without perhaps recognizing it, another supply chain fracture happening right in front of us. We are going to be at a place where families are going to be looking for where can they put grandma or grandpa to make certain that they're getting humane care uh, by professionals who know how to deal with the complexities of an aging individual. And we're seeing uh, nursing homes uh, reduce uh, their occupancy because they don't have the capacity uh, to house uh, the 80 beds that they normally operated at. Maybe they can only take care of 40. We're seeing closures, and we're going to see more. Group homes are also being critically impacted on. Then you look at the micro level. Instead of looking at the macro level, you look at the personal care attendants, and we need more personal care attendants, but pretty darn hard to get some of these folks to do the job they're being asked to do when they're not making uh, $15 an hour and potentially not even getting benefits depending upon their specific uh, working situation. So we've got to do a better job. And I, and I don't like the idea that, oh, that means more money. We spend a lot of money on health care. I remember when I went into medicine, Blaise, uh, we had just gone over 7%. Healthcare took up 7% of the gross uh, domestic product. Well, we're closing in on 20%. Literally one out of every $5 in our economy is healthcare dollars. That's astonishing. 
then we have to ask, okay, what are the driving forces for that? And one of the big driving forces is pharmaceuticals. Okay, what do we do there? Do we make them lower their prices? I don't know. You've got to be very careful because you've got to make sure you keep the incentives for research and development uh, going strong. But I do think that as a society, we take too many pills. And I think that sometimes uh, physicians are a big part of the problem. I think sometimes best practices are a part of the problem. Insurance companies are part of the problem. Uh, educating institutions, medical schools are part of the problems. But we use a lot of pills. We do a lot of cutting. Arguably, we do more cutting than we need to do. And we've also got a tremendously high ratio of low-value services being done. And oftentimes, they're being done with the doctor knowing full well the test is going to be negative. But we do it because there's no way in the world we want to get in a malpractice suit because we didn't do a CAT scan for this guy who fell and hit his head on the cement floor. So just do the dang CAT scan and uh, get your negative answer and then move on. And all of this is, if you will, feeding into our broken system. As healthcare, uh, as a healthcare pr- professional, I would I would love to see us roll up our sleeves, but that would be one of those issues uh, that you asked about before, boys, that could not be a uh, top-tier triage issue. That's going to be something that we take our – we're going to take a breath and uh, look at that first session and say, okay, how can we go about it? We need to prioritize, you know, the group homes, the nursing homes, the hospitals. We cannot let smaller communities lose these major players. We can't have women driving 100 miles to deliver a baby. We've got to come up with better answers. We've got to work – we've got to use pharmacists to the top of their license. It may well be that pharmacists should be doing more and more of our vaccination programs, not less. They do an excellent job. We've got to turn this Rubik's Cube around a little bit and find an answer because we're not doing the job. You've said you want to cut state government spending 10%. Is there anything that's off the table from cuts in state government? I honestly don't think that you can cut education. I think education is going to be one of those, one of the sacred cows, is that what they call them? Uh, and that's not called rocks and cows. I'm not calling anybody okay. a cow here. Okay. Noted. Uh, thank you. But I think that, you know, education, but I think with education, what you're going to do is you're going to look at how you deploy the dollars. If you look at the graphs right now, what's really rising is administrative costs and some other costs. But it is not the teachers. It is not, uh, if you will, what's going on in the classroom. But I, So I think uh, health, uh, health and human services, I would think we've got to be able to find uh, savings there. I think transportation. I think we could, again, deploy the dollars better, but we have got to spend more money on roads and bridges and infrastructure. Our bonding bills, um, people ask me, what do I think of bonding bills? I think you have to do bonding bills. I think that it's no different than buying a house. If you asked everybody to wait to buy a house until they had the money saved up to pay for the house, you'd have very few people buying a house. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're trying to do as a state. We're saying, well, this project is going to last 30 years, so we'll pay for it over 30 years. If you're elected, what's Matt Burke's role in your administration? He's my partner. He's going to be. Uh, we're going to be very close. Uh, he has expertise I don't have. He's got his degree in economics. I'd like him to take a chunk of the, the workload, and I'll take a chunk of the workload. Uh, we'll intersect every day. Uh, I'm. I'm not impressed with how we've been doing government, and I. I'm not even impressed with the org chart that uh, typical governors have in place. I've been reviewing these going back decades and looking at what what made things successful and what didn't so as far as i'm concerned uh, yeah we're going to color outside the lines uh, any topics that you think he'll focus on we're going to school choice uh rewriting emergency powers uh without question i i would like to see uh, us do things on energy i'd like us to focus on being energy independent uh, we got to get more money to the cops and uh, I, I think that those are those are some of the big ones and i would like photo id what does Minnesota have to do? You've, you've talked, you've cited numbers saying that um, Governor Walls talks a good game on the economy, but we're not as, you know, as vibrant of an economy as we could. What are one or two key things we need to do to make Minnesota's economy kind of better or more improved? In a phrase, all hands on deck. We've got to get 
more people working to fuel the Minnesota economy. We're not back to pre-COVID levels. And I think one of the things we have to do is when people are on entitlement programs, they don't go on those entitlement programs to have it be a way of life. It's a safety net, and they're using it, and that's what it's supposed to be there. We need to be more elegant in the way we help people continue to experience the security of a safety net and yet help them move off of it. Uh, and it has to be a win for them. There has to be more money in their wallet. I think that the gradation uh, is important. Let me just give you an example of where we failed. Obamacare. One of the worst things about Obamacare in terms of using the exchange is that they, they stuck in these advanced premiums, the, the premium subsidies. Yep. But there's a rate cliff. There's, a, there's this drop-off where if you make this amount of money, all of a sudden you don't get any help. And you can literally... Go from, had you made less money, you'd pay 10% of your income for your health care for your mm-hmm. family in terms of insurance and that because you'll be subsidized. Yeah. But if you if you pass this one moment, all of a sudden it goes to like 26%. So you go from 10 to 26%. Well, the incentive there is to tell your boss, I don't want that much money. i got to stay right here because I don't want to go past it. We've got to, we've got to do that better. And we do those things, I think, in a lot of government programs. We've got to get smarter. People are smart, and we need to assume people are smart. They're going to understand the rules of the game. We do not want to be creating some sort of a Machiavellian kind of structure that causes people to stay on the sidelines. We need them working. Have you talked to any CEOs, small businesses? What do they need from state government? They need a less hostile environment, which they do business. They need less regulations, and they need lower taxes. But honestly, they're more concerned about the hostile business climate and the excessive regulations that just smother some of their their initiatives. I think it's easy as a legislature to nibble at the edge and maybe tweak corporate taxes or business taxes or things like that. But Minnesota needs to go through. We need to undergo an overhaul about how we do business. We, We want people like Blois Olson, who maybe has a this little pocket business that he's got going in his. We need him dreaming about what's the next business he's going to do. What's the downstream business that he can create off of that? We, we, we've got to make it so that when you put your head on the pillow at night, you can't sleep because your head is filled with all kinds of ideas and things you want to get to. Personally, how do you unwind? What do you do for fun? I love to read. Uh, I've really missed I love reading fiction. And uh, typically, I try to read two books a month. And that's really taken a hit during the campaign. So I'd like to read more. Uh, I'd like to be there a little bit more now. My grandchildren are now five years of age. I've got a couple of grandkids there, so that means I can start helping them learn how to throw a baseball and, and how to maybe swing a golf club. And then I, I want to do a little bit more with my wife in terms of having us explore uh, places in the in the planet that we haven't seen. Uh, we've not been big travelers, and we enjoy traveling together. So I, it'd be fun to do a little more traveling because Mary's a lot of fun to travel with. Sounds great. Dr. Scott Jensen, thanks for joining me on Sunday Tech. DrScottJensen.com, thank you very much. This has been an extended interview with Dr. Scott Jensen on Sunday Take. For these last nine days, if you want to follow closely, go to FluenceNewsletters.com. I'm on with Vanita every morning at 620. Or search Morning Take on Facebook or Twitter, and you'll see the daily newsletter and our regular real-time updates about this race and the state of politics in Minnesota. Thanks for listening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.